out in the middle for that, but I sort of felt like it was kind of an abrupt change from my Memorial Day prayer uh, and poem to a uh, reading from Revelation, and I should have maybe announced that in there a little bit better, that, you know, today's service is about this song that we just sang, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, much of which comes from Revelation, so don't be too jarred by what's going to follow here in the imagery. Anyway, kids, let's meet out here in the sunshine for a second. Um, if I can get far enough away from the speaker, maybe we won't get too much reverb here. Maybe down in here. I will not knock myself out with the tree. So, so my question for today goes kind of like this. Where does our law come from? Now this is also sort of a question to see if you were paying attention really early on. What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, let me ask it kind of this way. What do you think? If enough of us get together and we just decide what the law is, is that pretty much the way it works? No, not like that. Why not like that? Can't we all just like vote for the people that are going to see it our way? And now, even majorities of people can get it wrong, isn't that right? I mean, 80 years ago in Europe, there was a tyrant named Hitler. Hitler was actually elected. The people got it wrong. You know, it's not impossible for us to do, right? So our God. Our law actually comes from God. It was handed down in the form of the Ten Commandments. Actually, today is the anniversary of that event. Do you know that? A way long time ago, you know, almost 4,000 years, well, 3,500 years ago now, Moses was at Mount Sinai, and that law was handed down. Now, the thing is, here's why we keep putting people in their positions of government, See, it's not for us to really make new law, but we need to continually figure out how that law should apply as the world kind of changes over time. You know, now you can see that we needed new rules once things like the car came along, that we didn't, I mean, we didn't have to have a 35 mile an hour speed limit when it was just horse and buggy, right? Okay. Um, Sometimes enforcing that law means that we need to make very tough choices, but we're all called to follow it, and not just follow it, make ourselves enforce it in our, and we, I see you, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, let me go back and talk to the big people about this one today, and see if you can get something out of my service. This is, uh, I, and I don't mean that in a, in a kind of snarky sounding way, actually. I, I think I've got good stuff for us here today. And uh, so the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and now uh, I'm going to credit Mike Pullen with this service, actually. He and I got to chatting about this, and we both love this song so much. And it says a lot 
to us that sort of speaks to us as it is very scriptural. Most of the words in the song come out of the scriptures, but, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to get to that but over the course of the time here. Um, so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So this has actually been a kind of difficult message to prepare for because it brings so many aspects under the microscope. And as I said, I've always loved this song because it's heavy on Christian Im imagery. I mean, all we need to do is run through a couple lines of the song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, how is actually speaking about the second coming of Christ. And she later uh, provides evidence of this in the song. He is trampling up the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's a reference to Revelation 14, 9 and 10. And again, 14, 7, 14, 17 to 20, which talks about the harvest and the wine press uh, uh, for the wrath of God upon unbelievers. Um, he's loosed the lightning of his terrible swift sword. The sword shows up many, many times, more than I can list here throughout Scripture. Um, uh, and actually, the sword in Revelation is described as coming out of Christ's mouth, um, a double-edged sword. So we should note that this is not a sword in the traditional sense, but rather the word of God himself. His truth is marching on. Um, you know, again, from Matthew 24, 35 and Luke 21, 33, right? It's the truth of God that marches on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hallelujah is actually a compound Hebrew phrase. Hallelujah is, you know, a joyous praise, joyous song. And the Yah is referring back to the tetragram Yahweh, right? So joy to Yahweh, right? So it would be hard to say that the song doesn't reckon back to the Bible. It clearly does. Now, this song uh, was written in a time when our nation was literally divided. It was divided over the election of Abe Lincoln and the issue of slavery. Now, a quick lesson here, and I don't want to make this a history course like I make so many in science class, but the U.S. Constitution was written by the states and it created a federal government. Um, Therefore, the federal government is actually the creation of these states. The idea was a two-layered system, and we got that idea actually from our time during the Revolution when, you know, our elected colonial government actually split with the King of England's government. Uh, so the idea behind the two layers of government is that they, they oblige each other, they keep each other in check, oblige each other to treat citizens well, rather than one layer of government that could get abusive. Anyway, the states became part of the United States by ratifying and signing onto this constitution. But the question was, could they unratify it and hence leave? What happens when the state or a group of states cannot muster the necessary support for reform. 
You know, can a state essentially quit the Union? And perhaps this is a fair question even today as much as it was in 1860. You know, however, the states, the citizens of the state that leaves remain citizens of the federal government and are therefore entitled to have the protection of that federal government. And the Civil War answered that question and said, no, the Union is perpetual. It's not possible for a state to secede. The question in 1860, much as it is today, goes like this. Whose morality are we going to apply and enforce? On this question, the concept is usually presented to seem kind of like this. We were all enjoying a time of good freedom without any consequence until you people wanted to put your morals over us. And we hear that still today. That, you know, often the church is portrayed as, you know, kind of forcing our moral values down other people's throats. But the truth is, no position, no opinion is neutral. Slavery certainly wasn't neutral in 1860. Um, you know, nor are the arguments that this all, the, the issues to which this argument is applied today. All ideas have consequence. And by virtue of membership in humanity, and especially by virtue of belief in divine law, we must assert what we believe to be right. The history of this notion makes one wonder, when future generations look back upon 2020, where will they see our blind spot? What is it that we're missing today, much as some of our forefathers missed the issue of slavery 160 years ago? The cause of emancipation and equality was carried throughout our land, primarily by the church, with the exception perhaps in the South. Just as it had been in Europe before, it was the church that called for the abolition of the abominable practice of slavery. So a word on biblical slavery here. The South, of course, maintained the position that the Ten Commandments do not outlaw slavery. If God had intended to, he would have said so plainly. And Paul sent Eunicinus back to Philemon. Uh, Eunicinus was a slave that had escaped. Um, the Apostle Paul sent him back. It turns out that there's more to that story. And of course, you, 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 <clears throat> Eunicinus brought Philemon, his master, into the church and then was set free, but it's also important to point out that biblical times slavery is somewhat different in that it usually occurred because people sold themselves into indenture, that is, into debt. That's why a debt is still called a bond. Um, it's this bondage that you've freely entered, now what if you can't pay back? But we could say the same about debt today. When I got a mortgage, 
don't I now, am I not now obligated to work to pay that mortgage off? So I think that this is kind of the reason, reasoning for the Bible's silence on the, on the issue, but I can think of nothing more Christian than the equality of men. As the framers of the Declaration also asserted, everyone is equal under God. Well, the struggle that ensued over abolition was, uh, of course, the nation's deadliest conflict. In fact, just one month during that war, July of 1863, saw as many fatalities as the entire European theater of World War II. So one can imagine that this seemed a struggle of biblical proportion. Certainly, one could envision the language of Revelation. And actually, even surprising, even prior to the military conflict, it was the Christian pacifist that was first to engage in this, in this issue that is the abolition cause. You know, it, it's one thing to be a pacifist, but we shouldn't just merely say that the people that take the pacifist stance are do-nothings and care nothing about the cause, or are trying to protect themselves and sort of get out of it. Not at all. The Mennonites and other Christian pacifists in our area were the primary organizers of the Underground Railroad. They risked their farms, their livelihoods, to help the slave escape. And it was from their congregations that John Brown would move to Texas. I'm sorry, would move to Texas. Move to Kansas. Texas. <laughs> sorry. Um, so John Brown was a Pennsylvania Mennonite. The issue was the vote in Kansas. The issue was slavery, and Kansas was going to put to a vote whether Kansas would be a slave state or a free state upon entry into the Union. Well, John Brown and his sons were among many who relocated to Kansas so that they could cast a vote in favor of Kansas being a free state. Although the record would show that the majority would vote for freedom in Kansas, that majority would not be counted. Many were killed, including three of Brown's sons, as they attempted to vote. Um, and, or those that were killed, their votes were summarily stricken from the record after the fact. He's dead, what does his vote count for now? Brown would actually go on to come to believe that pacifism would never win this fight, that the slaves themselves would need to be armed up and rise up in rebellion and assert their rights. And that led to an event in the state of Maryland, which we're probably familiar with, and that would be Brown's raid on the um, federal armory there, which led to the hanging of John Brown, and in fact, the earlier version of this song a song called John Brown's Body. The idea in that song was that you could kill the man, but right ideas will prevail. Enter Julia Ward Howe, 
who kept the tune but changed the lyrics. Howe stated that her intention was to strengthen the hearts and stir the spirits of Union troops as they marched off to war. But is this really Christian? And even war itself, what is the Christian relationship to it? This is a topic, of course, for later discussion and an entire other sermon, probably. But suffice it to say, the church has struggled with this substantially through its history. In reality, the, as beautiful as it is, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is somewhat Christian wartime propaganda. It's actually proclaiming holy war against the South. But weren't the Southerners Christian too? This kind of reminds me of a, a scene from the movie We Were Soldiers, where Mel Gibson plays a Vietnam-era Lieutenant Cal Morris, and the day before the battle, he goes into the chapel and he prays, and in his prayer, well, he concludes his prayer with, and Lord, hear our prayer, but ignore the prayers of our enemy. So, um, I think we're kind of on that track with the song. Nonetheless, one must ask if the Bible verses that how cleverly knits together can be rightly applied. That is, encouraging man to engage in warfare. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to be a Monday morning quarterback or rethink the Civil War but I'm merely examining the appropriate use of scripture in the context that Howe uses it. And by the way, the Bible is no stranger to military imagery. In Revelation 19, from which this hymn is derived, John is using Roman military imagery. The white horse is the horse of victory. But John uses it to show that Christ as opposed to a Roman or earthly military leader, is going to, to win the day. No earthly army is going to be victorious. The terrible swift sword, the sword in Revelation, the double-edged sword that comes from Christ's mouth, is the word of God. It's not an earthly weapon, but this sword will strike down the nations and places Christ to rule with an iron scepter. That scepter is inflexible, unbreakable law, an ironclad justice. No nation wins this battle, all lose. This is much different from the outcome which Howe envisions in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. By the way, all nations lose because all nations have been deceived by the horror of Babylon, that is, pagan gods. In any event, contrary to establishing an earthly army of Christian soldiers to wage war, the message of Revelation is the certain victory of Jesus Christ over evil, a far better accomplishment than any human war could ever secure. But Jesus is described as covered in, his, in blood, but not the blood of his enemies, his own blood. And so are the armies that follow him. And in Revelation 19, this, this has occurred before his enemies are struck down. It's occurred before the battle is won. And at the conclusion of this conquest, 
Jesus Christ as a new title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is, Jesus replaces every other political or spiritual power which demands our allegiance. Not the Union Army. Jesus demands our allegiance. So now, recall that these powers that I'm talking about, these political powers and spiritual powers, they aren't merely people. They are the controlling ideas of our world. And in many ways, Revelation 19 has come to pass. Christianity has vastly reshaped our world. <clears throat> um, the ideas of Christianity have replaced those of the pagan past. The victory was won by the blood of martyrs against an overwhelmingly powerful pagan world at the time of Christianity's inception. Christianity couldn't have mustered an army to deal with Rome. And it's perhaps an example of how we must prevail. However, in our own era, we now see many abandoning the church and this victory with it. And I believe that we'll see a resurgence of these old world gods because I believe they're exactly what we ought to expect from the human heart. Devoid of God, that is. As we move away from Christianity, these controlling ideas will most certainly return to our culture. While the battle hymn is filled with scriptural images, it doesn't really have anything to do with the return of Jesus or Revelation 19. Christianity has long struggled with how the Christian ought to respond to the evils of this world, including slavery and war. The scriptures don't provide clear answers. Perhaps we're meant to struggle on this subject. Christianity teaches that justice comes from God, Psalm 82. And Christians are to work for justice. But does this justice require the use of might to end injustice? It seems to me that occasionally it does in this world. Yet Christians are to be peacemakers from Matthew 5. But again, where is the peace in a world that's ruled with unjust fear? Governments are instituted among men to, by God, to vanquish evil. This is Romans 13. This includes punishing the criminal, but also waging war against evil. But yet we are called to love our enemies and pray for them and turn another cheek. Thankfully, and eventually, war will become a thing of the past. Isaiah 2.4. And let us all rejoice in that day. Amen.